Well, I invite you now to open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we'll finish up uh, chapter 5 this morning, Lord willing. And your notes, just to show that they are not inerrant like Scripture, has begins with the wrong verse. So it should be verse 25 through verse 28. The Apostle Paul writes to wrap up this first letter to the Thessalonians, these important words. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, closing remarks can be a very powerful conclusion to a speech or to a letter. Uh, Take, for example, one speech that probably most of us studied in grammar school. Maybe many of us memorized it. But it was Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address where he honored those who had died in the battle. But though you may not remember much about that speech, you probably will recognize the concluding words, which says that the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And those are powerful words. Many remember them, many recite them, because they immortalize and sum up, in many ways, the very nature of our constitutional government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Far more profound than those words are the words written by an apostle of Jesus Christ. Words that were written inspired by the Spirit of God Himself. God breathed so that even the closing comments of letters like this in 1 Thessalonians are given by God for our edification. So whenever you come to the conclusion of letters in the Scriptures, uh, don't let your attention fade away or gloss over the final words because they are equally inspired by God and profitable like everything else. And too often times we think, well, the meat of it's already in the, in the heart of the, of the letter, and so this is just kind of a signing off, but it's far more important than that, obviously. And so it's our privilege now to look at these concluding remarks from the Apostle Paul, and basically he says four things that we want to look at together this morning. The first thing he says in verse 25 is, Brethren, pray for us. Now the Apostle Paul had already indicated three times in this letter that he was praying for them. We see this, uh, for example, in verse 2 of chapter 1, when he writes that we always give thanks and pray to God for you. He says again in chapter 3, May the Lord cause you to abound in love for one another and for all people and establish your hearts in holiness. And then again in chapter 5, that God would sanctify you entirely. And these are three different prayers that Paul is making for them. 
And he does it within the context of the letter. But now he asks for their prayers. And what we see from this is that Paul's request for prayer from this church says something very powerful about the character of the man. It's really quite amazing to me to think of this incredibly godly and gifted apostle of Jesus Christ, a man who's been raised up by God, anointed by Christ to do so many incredible things for the Lord, is a man who nevertheless was incredibly humble and he sensed his own utter need for the prayers of the saints so that his ministry might be pleasing to Christ. The Apostle Paul knew that his ministry was 100% dependent upon the blessings of God. And the blessings of God come upon people primarily one of the most important means of grace in bringing those blessings is prayer. And the Apostle Paul was very much coveting their prayers for his ministry. Just consider the humility of this man of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, this great man of God could say, I planted, Apollos watered, but we didn't cause the growth. It was God who caused the growth. So then neither the one who plants, me, says Paul, nor the one who waters is anything. We're nothing. But it's God who causes the growth. Paul understood that. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. See, the Apostle Paul knew, in fact, that as a sinner, nothing good could come from him apart from God's grace working in his heart and life. When he wrote a letter to Timothy, he said, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, a violent aggressor. And so he was a very humble man who recognized how much he needed the grace of God to help him. Again, in 2 Corinthians 3, just one more example of which there are many in his writings where he acknowledges his humility when he says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. So the Apostle Paul was not a man who was, who was stuck on himself. He was not... He was not arrogant in his mind thinking that he was adequate to do all the work that Christ had called him to. He thought he was inadequate. Totally inadequate. So that nothing could come from him. But his adequacy comes from one place and that is God Almighty. Oh saints, pray for me was his attitude. Because apart from God working in and through me, nothing will happen. It's just amazing that this man of God would, would close with these final words that he wants ringing in their ears when they get to the end of this letter to remember Paul wants our prayers. He believes he needs them. And this really just sets up again the importance that Paul believed in prayer. He believed in prayer. 
And that's why he requested for his churches to pray for him. Not just this church, but other churches as well. In his next letter to the church of Thessalonica, he'll write, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly. To the church at Rome, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. To the church of Ephesus, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the proclamation of the word. To the church of Colossae, praying at the same time for us, this is so important, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I also have been imprisoned. He didn't think he would have any success in his ministry apart from the prayers of God's people to bring down God's blessing upon his life. To the church at Philippi, and he was in prison when he wrote this, this letter, he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. So here's an incredible man of God, gifted, godly, that put no confidence in himself but total confidence in the need for God to intervene and for God to work mightily to bring about success and fruit within his own ministry. Paul believed that the prayers of the saints were a vital part in his own ministry. And Leon Morris wrote that he knew that he needed their prayers just as much as they needed his prayers. And this is the heart of a godly man who is calling upon the church, asking the church to pray for him. Now it's interesting, when Paul is writing this letter to the church at Thessalonica, he is in Corinth. And things are not going so well in Corinth. Uh, You remember back in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 6 and 7, He says that when Timothy came from the Thessalonian church and gave me a report on how you're doing, that greatly comforted me because I was in a lot of distress and affliction. He's in Corinth. He's trying to to grow the church, do evangelism, train and teach the disciples there. And he describes his time there that I was in a lot of distress and affliction. And most people may not think about that. Apostle Paul is a giant of a man. I mean, he's just, he does miracles. I mean, nothing can get this guy down. Nothing can frustrate his ministry. Yeah, it can. And he realized that. And so he is, he is requesting their prayers for him because his ministry in Corinth was not easy. There was opposition from the Jews. There were opposition from the the Gentiles there. There's an underlying hostility that he's having to deal with. And so he, he cherished, he coveted their prayers. I think the application for us today is to pray for those who teach you and minister to you. If Paul needed prayer and wanted prayer, how much more those of far lesser stature and giftedness and godliness need your prayers. You need to pray for their, your Sunday school teachers, those in the Bible Institute who teach you. You need to pray for those who lead in the worship service. 
You need to pray that when they spend time in the Word of God, that the Spirit of God would sanctify their lives and their hearts. They have stresses and struggles just like you do. They have temptations to sin just like we all do. They need your prayer. Pray that God would so work into their hearts and minds that what they give you is the overflow of what they've already experienced in the grace of God themselves. Pray for their clarity that they might speak clearly. Pray for the the power of the Holy Spirit to attend the ministry of the Word of God as you receive it. Pray for yourselves that your hearts might come prepared to receive the seed of the Word. That God would give you good soil in your hearts so that the seed of Scripture would, would take root downward and bear fruit upward. Pray that God would be glorified through the ministry of those who teach and preach the Word of God. That all lives, including theirs and ours who hear, would be transformed under the ministry of Scripture. Because without God's blessing, then the seed of the Word that's taught in Sunday school classes or in the worship service will fall on hard roadside soil and Satan will quickly swoop down and gobble it up and take it away. Without the ministry of the Spirit of God when the, when the Word is taught, then that seed will just be choked out by all the worries of the world and all the, all the things of, of worldliness and the deceitfulness of riches can just choke out the Word so it never bears fruit. We need the Spirit of God to bless His Word so that lives are changed and transformed. Not only of those who speak and teach, but those who hear and listen and receive. How many times is speaking on behalf of our Sunday school teachers and those who preach from this pulpit, how many times have we gone into that class or stood up in front of people just feeling how inadequate and insufficient the message that we have prepared is? We come with our little paltry five loaves and two fish and there's far more souls out there and it's just totally insufficient. And what we need is for Christ to grab that bread, grab that food, and multiply it in His hands to feed every, every soul that is there. How many times have, have those who taught in our Sunday school classes and again preached from this pulpit brought our many notes up into the pulpit with us. Notes made out of paper, which is made out of wood. And we're reminded of Elijah's altar made out of wood when he took those four great jars of water and he doused it on there once and four times again for a second time and then again a third time. And this wood is waterlogged. This wood will not burn. This sermon will not catch fire. It will not bless anybody. But then we pray to God Almighty, and God can send the fire down to ignite the message that it burns fire and hot in the hearts of God's people for the glory of God. How many times have we realized our own inadequacy that nothing can come from us apart from God's blessing? How important is it for the people of God to pray for those who teach and preach to them? 
apart from God's intervention and God's multiplication of the bread and God's fire from heaven, nothing good would take place. So pray for yourselves. Pray for those who teach. Pray for our missionaries that God might be glorified through His Word. That's the heart. That's the first request of the Apostle Paul. Pray for us. Pray for me, he says. I need your prayers. That's his heart. And that's the heart of everyone who tries to minister. We are not adequate nor sufficient. Only God is. And we need His blessing. And those blessings come through your prayers. So that's the first thing. The second thing he says to the church in verse 26 is greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Greet all the brethren. And really the emphasis here is on on all. Greet them all. And he wanted to to pass on his, his love and his care and concern for everyone in that church. Uh, He wanted all of them to be greeted so as to avoid any sense of discrimination or favoritism or cliquish mentality that Paul really is only close to a few, but he really doesn't care for the rest in the church. No, he wants every individual in that church to be greeted, receive a greeting from him. It's not the attitude of us four, no more, close the door. He wanted the whole church to know that He loved them. He cared for them. So greet them all. Now it was especially important in those days that this uh, greeting be expressed to every member of the church because of all the barriers of unity within the church that caused disunity. There were racial barriers within the church. You have Jews and Gentiles, people from different backgrounds that may not normally be compatible with one another or united, but within the church they should be united. They're all brothers and sisters in one body to Christ. So it would overcome any racial barriers. It would also overcome any social barriers. Because within most of those churches, some of those people were slaves. Some of them were freedmen. Some of them were wealthy. Some very, very poor. But within the, within the church of Christ, we're all one. There's none greater than the other. So by greeting them all is to help to break down those barriers that oftentimes humans erect in their own superior attitudes over other people. No, Paul wants his greeting to go to all the brethren. <clears throat> now in other places, Paul exhorts the brethren, to greet one another. And that's also possibly implied here as well. But I think this is mainly Paul wanting to pass on his greeting to all the brethren in the church. But it is important, of course, that we all greet one another. Uh, That's one of the great ministries of the church. That's how we show our love. That's how we show our friendship. Is we go out of the way to greet people. It's just a great uh, gesture of family love and friendship, when we come up with a welcoming smile and we greet someone, even if we don't know them, maybe it's a visitor. But how important and vital uh, that is to a healthy church. He adds here, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. 
And the idea is kind of like, give everyone a kiss for me. That's kind of his, his idea here. A kiss was a common greeting back in that culture. And it was carried into the church. Although it was, it was expressed uh, throughout the culture. And it was usually held that a kiss was exchanged at first only between members of the same sex. Men would come up and, and uh, greet other men with a holy kiss, women with other women. Uh, definitely need to be careful about that in our culture. Men try to greet another man with a holy kiss, be prepared to duck. But in our culture, we use other things, hugs, we use uh, the right hand of fellowship, whatever it might be. But back then, the holy kiss was very prominent. Uh, The early church for several centuries and even beyond uh, practiced it, but it began to get out of hand uh, in certain situations. So church councils began to regulate the holy kiss, sometimes called a kiss of love. And they eventually assigned it in some areas to the liturgical practice during Holy Communion. That's when you would exchange the Holy Kiss. So they began to to regulate it. But it's still a custom today, isn't it, in the Middle East, over and in Europe. A lot of times they'll do the the two kiss on the cheek greeting. And so it's something that's still uh, prevalent in other cultures today. Back in the first century, though, that that kiss was a greeting that expressed love and friendship and bonding and, and a caring heart. How vile and reprehensible then was it that Judas chose to betray our Lord with a kiss? It was a, it was a fitting rebuke when Jesus turned to him right after that And he said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? The very gesture that's supposed to express love, you are now doing it to express your enmity towards me? You're taking a gesture which is a sign of affection to express your your animosity? You're using a sign of brotherhood to express your betrayal and that you're a traitor. O thou wicked kiss. But in this context, obviously, it's a kiss to express genuine concern and love for one another. So the principle for us today is to greet one another. And again, in this context, the greeting is from Paul to all the members of the church. But I'm amplifying that. The, The ministry of greeting one another And when appropriate, add the warmth and personal touch of a culturally appropriate sign, whether it's a hug or a handshake, just to to communicate the love and friendship of that greeting. So that's the second thing that he emphasizes. The third thing is quite interesting in verse 27. He says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Now this is pretty strong language just for having the letter read. I adjure you by the Lord. And the word to adjure means that you place somebody under an oath. Swear to me by the Lord. 
You're going to read this letter to everyone in the church. That's kind of what he's saying. Swear to me by the Lord that you're going to have this read to all. So Paul is quite, quite serious about placing them under this oath. And an oath implies divine punishment if you don't fulfill it. So why would he be so serious about having this letter read to the entire church? Well, there's several things we could probably draw from this. Certainly, we see the centrality of Scripture in the worship service. Later, Paul will write a letter to Timothy. And he says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. So by, by adjuring them, placing them on, on an oath by the Lord to read this letter to all the brethren, Paul is certainly establishing the importance of sola scriptura. That the Scripture is absolutely vital to the health of the church. This is what Jesus prayed, you remember in John 17, verse 17, when He prayed to the Father concerning His disciples. He said, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So the truth of Scripture is the essential means of grace by which the church is sanctified. We grow more like Christ. So in addition to just emphasizing just the value, the importance, the mandatory importance of Scripture in their corporate worship services, You can also assume that this command is to counteract some of the discrepancies within that church. Some of the things that uh, they, they needed but they didn't have. And that would be the importance of reading Scripture in light of the fact that scrolls and manuscripts were relatively rare in those days. Many would not have a copy of Paul's letter. Some of them within the church probably couldn't even read. So it was vital that the Scriptures, these letters, be read publicly to the church. So everybody can hear. Everybody can be taught. Everybody can be, can be exhorted. So that may also be a secondary reason for the importance of placing them under an oath. And by the way, you know, how blessed are we that we have the Bible so readily and easily at hand? I mean, we have it on our phones. We have probably multiple copies at home. And we don't have that problem of not having Scripture. We have it anytime we want it. And we should certainly take advantage of our advantage that the Scriptures are easily attainable by anybody and everybody today. But again, I think maybe behind this seriousness of placing an oath upon them to read the letter to all the brethren is that within the letter, remember, he had to deal with certain issues that people differed on. Uh, He had to address some people in the church who were disorderly in the church. Some held to a contrary view of the end times. And so Paul had to emphasize that within the letter. Now, if you are among those groups, if you are one of the disorderly ones that the Apostle Paul had to exhort and admonish in the letter, 
Or if you held to a different view of of the end times, and Paul did, and you just differed with him, and now you hear that a letter from Paul has arrived, you may be kind of a little bit suspicious that maybe he's going to take me to task, and maybe I don't want to show up on that Sunday, or you know, when they're reading that letter, and so they may have a tendency to want to avoid it, skip the service. They don't want to be rebuked or embarrassed by what Paul might say to them in his letter. It's kind of like, why go to a barbecue when you're, when you're the meat that's going to be grilled? And so they're thinking in their minds, I'm going to sit this one out, you know. I'll come back in a month or so. And that's why possibly he is saying to the elders of this church that are receiving the letter, no doubt, I place you under oath, you make sure everybody hears this letter. Everybody needs to hear it. And so he's probably doing that so that they can hear his word of rebuke or admonition. And so he stresses, read it to all the brethren. So the importance of reading Scripture is certainly important for all of us today, particularly in light of how easy it is for us to have a copy of the Word. And then finally, the Apostle Paul closes in verse 28 the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul closes all of his letters with a similar benediction to this one towards the end of his letters. Uh, This is kind of the concluding emphasis on grace, which was almost like his signature. And, And it may have been his practice that when it comes to this final benediction, this final prayer for grace for the church that the Apostle Paul took the the pen, the writing instrument from the amanuensis, the scribe who may have written it down as he spoke it, and he actually wrote this with his own hand. And he makes even reference to that in one of his letters. But Paul closes all of his letters and he also opens all of his letters with a prayer for grace. Grace for the church. See, grace was central to Paul's whole theology. Again, he begins his letter with grace and peace be upon you and he closes his letters. May the grace of God be with you or the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's like the bookends of all of his letters. He begins with grace and he ends with grace. For Paul, this this final Petition or benediction was not just an empty traditional formula for signing off. It's not like over and out, you know. For the Apostle Paul, when he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, for him it was personal. For him it was powerful. And for him it placed grace as a priority in the Christian life. So when we come to the idea of grace, we have to understand that it is at the very heart of the Gospel. It's at the very heart of God's redemptive program for His people. And so Paul always begins and ends with grace. So what does grace mean? It's an important word. might take just a moment to reflect on what it means. A common definition for grace goes something like this. It's the undeserved 
or unmerited favor of God. We don't deserve it because we're sinners. We don't merit it because we're sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who's done good in God's eyes, not one. So grace is always undeserved. God doesn't give grace because we're such good people or we're so obedient or we're so godly. We all are undeserving sinners. Now you can break that grace down into two categories. You have common grace where God gives the rain and the sunshine to, as common gifts to all people. Believers and unbelievers. But Paul mainly has special grace in mind here. And this is the gift of God to those who don't deserve it. So look at Romans 3, 23 and 24. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So notice the emphasis here is that all have sinned. So we don't deserve any blessing from God. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Paul in other places will say, by nature we are hostile to God. By nature we are enemies of God. By nature we are enslaved to sin and Satan. And we all deserve death and hell. That is what we deserve. But God in His mercy gives grace to those who deserve His wrath and His anger. And He does it through Jesus Christ. So that though we are helpless, hopeless, and hell-bound, some receive a special grace. And they are justified as a gift by His grace. That grace is a, gives a gift of justification. It's all free. It's not earned. It's not merited at all. So that's one definition for grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor, salvation, forgiveness, heaven that comes from God to those who deserve the opposite. And when we receive it through Christ, that is His grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor of God. But there's a secondary, another meaning for the word grace. And that is, it's just the power of God for living the Christian life. And this is a very broad term. But there's many verses that use God's grace in this way. For example, 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So what's he saying? My whole ministry, my apostolic labors is empowered by God's grace. I labored even more than them all, but it wasn't me, it wasn't just me, it was God's grace with me. That's what enabled me and empowered me to labor in all the ways that the Apostle Paul labored in his ministry. The power came from grace. God's grace in his life. In his second letter, Paul said something similar. Chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. The sufficiency 
that enables us to have an abundance of good deeds comes from grace. It's God's power to enable God's people to serve God. It all comes from grace. In 2 Corinthians 12.9, again, the Apostle Paul says that God told him, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. God says, I've given you a thorn in the side and I will not take it away because I mean to bless you through that. So I've made you weak. But when you're weak, then you're strong because my grace is sufficient to give you the power that you need to not only live with that impediment, that trial in your flesh that you have, but to continue to bear fruit for My glory. It's My grace that's sufficient for you. Because My grace gives power. And that power is perfected in our weakness. So again, the grace of God not only is generally the unmerited undeserved favor of God, but it's also the power of God that we need daily to live the Christian life. We need God's grace every day. That's why the author of Hebrews could say, therefore let us draw near with confidence to where? The throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, the help that you need, the assistance, the encouragement, all of that that we need is God's grace that we get from the throne of grace. And so we need God's grace. Grace is a vital part of the Christian life. And that grace, notice what Paul says in verse 28, is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, all the grace that we receive from God comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. comes from Christ. Ultimately, it all comes from Him. Christ is a fountain for all the grace that flows to us. The Apostle John wrote in chapter 1, verse 14 of his Gospel, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ is full of grace. He's an infinite ocean of grace. And our need for grace is constant and all-encompassing. And we get it from Christ ultimately. Grace is full of grace. The blessings that we need every day. Grace is like Joseph's coat of many colors. There's all kinds of empowering graces that come from God. So that grace is the food that empowers the Word to feed our souls. Grace is the spiritual sunshine and rain that makes our spiritual fruit grow and, and ripen. Grace is what puts the, the sword of of animosity and division back in the sheath so that the people of God can live in peace with one another. That's grace that brings about peace within a church. Grace is the fire that warms our hearts to love God and love one another. Grace is a strong arm of God that defeats our enemies within and without. Grace gives us eyes to see and ears to hear 
and feet to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. It's grace that gives our heart courage and strength to fight off discouragement and weakness and worry and anxiety and fear. That's grace. Grace gives us inner peace to overcome all the troubles of life. It gives us joy in Jesus, commitment in Christ. Grace helps our wandering hearts to fix our eyes on Jesus and become conformed to His image. All of that flows from God's grace. So that God's grace is the unmerited favor and power to save us, to sanctify us, and to glorify us. And it all comes through Christ. Someone once came up with this expression to summarize the letters in the word grace. That it stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. And I really think that's a pretty good understanding of what grace is all about. It's the favor, it's the blessings, it's the riches of God, but it comes to us at Christ's expense. You see, Christ is the agent of that grace. Christ purchased that grace for us on the cross. He came down from heaven as our substitute. He went to the cross. He took on Himself all of our sins. He drank the full cup, every single drop of the cup of God's wrath that we deserve for our sins. He drank it all. And then He imputed His own perfect righteousness to us who believe so that the very floodgates of God's grace can be poured out upon us. It was all purchased. It was bought. It was secured. It was guaranteed through Christ's expense. His death on the cross. His resurrection. So that Christ is the source of all of that incredible grace. So the very last thing that Paul wants them to hear is his heart in his prayer that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That Paul is praying that God would give the believers at Thessalonica grace. And that really should be our prayer and desire too as well. O living Lamb of God, give us more grace. Fill us more with Your marvelous, wonderful, and amazing grace. Because we need it every single day, every hour. Oh God, give us the grace from Christ that we might live our lives in such a way to bear fruit for Your glory and for Your honor. And may God answer that prayer at Northwest Bible Church this morning. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we thank You for these powerful and amazing words spoken by the Apostle Paul as he wrapped up his first letter to the Thessalonians. And how important these themes, the importance of prayer, the importance of 
greeting one another, the importance of reading Scripture, the importance of recognizing our utter need for the grace of God in everything that we do. And that grace is funneled to us through the prayers of the saints as we pray for one another and pray for grace for each and every one in this church. And Father, we thank You that as the fountain of all grace, that we can bring our request to You, Lord, that we can ask that You would pour out more grace upon Your children. Help us to overcome our sins. Help us to be encouraged and have the joy of the Lord overflowing in our hearts. Help us to love one another. Help us to bear fruit for Your glory and for Your honor. Because to do all of that, Lord, we need Your grace. We are insufficient. We are inadequate. We cannot do it. We need Your grace and Your power. So, O Lord, pour out Your grace upon this church and all of our missionaries and all of our teachers that we might bear much fruit for Your glory and honor. For we ask it in the name of the fountain and the source and the ocean of infinite grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.